0: Tonight we're going to be in Revelation 19 as we're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights, Revelation chapter 19. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your promise that you're going to return and that you're going to set everything right. And as we look at these future events, Lord, we pray that we could see it through the eyes of faith to trust your word that you are going to come on your white horse and reign over the kings of men, that you're going to invite us to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? God, would you set me aside and give me grace and strength in teaching your word? And Lord, for those that are weary, that need refreshment, would you provide that? God, Where correction is needed. Would you speak that into our lives? Where perspective needs to change, would you help us to, to see you in a greater light? We thank you that your word is a consuming fire and a hammer. Won't we turn void? So we come in faith of who you are to speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Alleluia and amen are two powerful words. Alleluia means praise the Lord. It's similar to hallelujah. Hallelujah is Hebrew, means praise the Lord. Alleluia, Greek, meaning praise the Lord. We're going to see that four times in this chapter, hallelujah, but they're the only times the word alleluia is used in the New Testament. So God saves this word to finish out his testimony in the book of of Revelation. The word amen means so be it, right? So if someone says amen, it's a term of agreement or so be it. I'm with you. I agree with that. I testify with that. So if you're feeling a little Pentecostal tonight, you can shout out hallelujah or amen because it fits with the text, all right? You guys were ready. You just needed permission, right? So a few things to remember to not forget as we've gone through the book of Revelation is the purpose of this book is to reveal Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not plural revelations, it's singular, and hopefully as we've been studying this that Christ has been revealed in your perspective, in my perspective, in a greater way. The key to understanding the book of Revelation comes from chapter 1, verse 19, where God gives us a divine outline. It says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The things that John had seen was the person of Jesus Christ. The things which are was the church, Revelations 2 and 3, God writing seven letters to seven churches, and then the things that take place after that, after the church age, and we're in that last section of the book of of Revelation. One simple question sums up this chapter. Do you want to be welcomed to dinner, or do you want to be dinner? Okay, (laughs) Because there's two feasts that are taking place. There's the marriage feast of the Lamb, where God welcomes us to his table. But then also you see the feast of God's judgment, where God is pouring out his judgment. And and the birds are eating upon those that have received God's destruction. Verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. After these things, what things? The destruction of Babylon, God's judgment upon the world system. When heaven sees Babylon be judged, Babylon be destroyed, the great multitude responds by saying, Alleluia, praise the Lord. Now, who's the great multitude? The great multitude are those that are already in heaven that have gone to be with the Lord before the rapture, those that are in the rapture, those that have died during the time of the tribulation, it seems that heaven gets to look down upon this event of Babylon being destroyed, and the expression is, praise the Lord, God in his righteousness has dwelt with wickedness. One of the things that I love about worship together corporately, I think there's great importance of worshiping together, is there's power in the multitude, isn't there? when we come together and we lift our voice uh, to sing to the Lord, God meets us in that. I love hearing your voices sing to the Lord. I love being able to join in the chorus of, of alleluia. And in this day of podcasts and live stream, there's the place for that. We we do those things, and I'm I'm thankful that God's word can get out in those ways, but I still think that there's a difference about being in the congregation and singing with God's people that you can't replace uh, sitting in your family room doing live stream. Now, if you're in your family room doing live stream, we welcome you. We're glad that you're listening, but there is a great work that God does when we get to to be in a room together and lift our voices. It could be in someone's family room. It could be around a campfire. It could be in a youth room or a sanctuary. But the ultimate expressions when we get to heaven, and we're going to join together with one voice. But before the Lord, as we sing to the Lord, as this great multitude sings uh, to the Lord, they're ascribing salvation, glory, and honor. And really, those things only belong to the Lord. Salvation belongs to Jesus. He's the one who provides salvation. Real glory only belongs to the Lord. He's the one that deserves glory. He's the one who's truly good. All of us are sinful and sinners, but he deserves all glory. He deserves all honor and all praise to have that position of authority. Those things belong to the Lord. Verse two, "'For true and righteous are his judgments "'because he has judged the great harlot "'who corrupted the earth with her fornication.'" and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. As the multitude is worshiping, they're ascribing to God that he is righteous and His true in his judgments. When we see the judgments of the Lord, we're going to attest that they're righteous and they're true. A lot of times people will ask me different questions, and I don't always have a good answer. I know that that's not surprising. They'll say, well, how is God gonna deal with this situation? Or how does God deal with a three-year-old that dies before they get to that age of accountability? And I take great rest in knowing righteous and true are his judgments. When we get to heaven, when we're in the part of this great multitude, we're not gonna go, God, you got this wrong. Somebody's not gonna be able to cry foul before God and say, say, God, you were unrighteous. You were not true in the way that you dealt with this. As God is bringing judgment upon Babylon, the expression of agreement is this is righteous and true are his judgment. Babylon's corrupted the whole earth with her fornication, and God has avenged the blood of his servants. So the spiritual idolatry and also the killing of Christians is why God poured out his judgment upon Babylon. Again, they said, alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying amen and hallelujah so once again the multitude says hallelujah I was having a, a conversation this week and someone said praise the Lord and it just hit me it kind of got me out of the doldrums of the day and I was like yeah God did do that that, that was the Lord the Lord's work and sometimes, you know, praise the Lord can be kind of trite. And Bear with me on this. I don't think you should just throw out an hallelujah, praise the Lord, to fill empty space. Or for us to sound like Joe Christian or Jessica for Jesus, right? Is, if you don't mean it, don't say it, right? If our heart's not in that place of praise the Lord, hallelujah, I don't think we should force it in there or want people to think spiritual of us. But at the same time, we shouldn't hold it back. In our hearts, if we're like, this is the Lord. You know, God has done this, and I want to praise him. I want to thank him. And so there's that place for the praise of the Lord and that for that hallelujah. So they express it, the multitude, the second time. But then also the 24 elders, they begin worshiping as well. And they fell down, and they worshiped God who sat upon the throne. The word worship means to ascribe worth to. To ascribe worth to. They're looking at the greatness of God and they're falling down before the Lord in worship, the 24 elders. We don't know who the 24 elders are, but this is the sixth time we've seen them in the book of Revelation and they're always worshiping. Always worshiping. What a great testimony. What a great legacy. Why were they always worshiping? Because they saw the Lord, they had the revelation of Jesus. And in the revelation of Jesus, they respond in worshiping the Lord. Is worship missing in my life? The question could then be, am I failing to see the Lord? Am I failing to see him seated upon the throne? Because when I'm seeing the Lord, then worship is going to follow. And worship is singing to the Lord. It is bowing down before the Lord. But more than anything else, it's the attitude of our hearts of being in awe of God where God has our attention and he has our our adoration. They ascribe amen and hallelujah. Amen, so be it. They're in agreement and they're praising the Lord for his judgment that he brings. In verse five, then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. This voice from the throne room gives a command, praise our God. It's a command for us to join in singing to the Lord. All you his servants and those who fear him, those that respect him, both small and great. No matter what your reputation is or isn't, whether you're young, whether you're old, small or great, respond in singing to the Lord. To give praise to God is a choice. In Hebrews 13 verse five, it says this, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Sometimes we feel like praising. Sometimes we feel like singing. Oftentimes we don't feel like praising. We don't feel uh, like singing. And God commands us here in verse 5 is praise him for who he is and what he's done in your life. I was reading an article yesterday from the, the Mayo Clinic on just health and physical health, and one of the things that they gave us some advice was to practice gratitude. I thought that was interesting from a secular organization that leads the way in health is saying you are going to be more healthy physically if you choose to practice gratitude. On Wednesdays, we have staff devotions, and this summer we've been studying a lot of psalms, And in the Psalms, we see David saying to his soul, speaking to his soul, I will praise the Lord. It happens over and over again. I don't know if you noticed, but tonight in worship, when Billy was leading worship, uh, there was a point where he began to sing and he was singing to his soul, saying, bless the Lord. And that's biblical. That's, That's what David does is saying, wake up, God is good. Choose to praise him. I've made this observation and I could be completely wrong, but I don't know as believers, me included, that we are more grateful than unbelievers. When I spend time with believers, I don't get the sense that we're a more grateful group of people. But we should be, shouldn't we, right? We really have so much more to be thankful for, but if you're like me, I find all of the things I don't like, even as God's son, as God's child. I can tell you the 10 things that annoyed me today a lot quicker then I can tell you the 10 things about God's character are the 10 ways that God has been faithful to, to my family. So I think there's a lot to learn here to praise the Lord. Be, be thankful for who he is. Be thankful for, for what he has done. God is commanding us, encouraging us to do this, to give the sacrifice of praise. And when we give the sacrifice of praise, a lot of times our emotions do come along. We're like, that's true. Yes, Jesus, be lifted high. Be lifted high above my circumstance and above my emotions. In verse 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So the voice of the multitude is loud. The illustration is the, the sound of many waters, of mighty thunderings. One of the most relaxing things is to sit by the ocean and hear the waves just crashing down. The only thing that we're missing in Colorado is the ocean, right? Some people are like, no, we're not. But then also the thunder. We've got the thunder, right? The power of the, of the thunder. And the multitude, their voice in praising God is this, this powerful sound. And they're saying, praise the Lord for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. We're going to see four titles of Jesus in this section of Revelation. And the first is the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The word omnipotent means all-powerful. That Jesus is all-powerful and that he reigns in our lives. Now I think that we believe this. Most of us tonight would say, yeah, I believe that God reigns. I believe that he's sovereign, that he's in control of my life. But then as we face difficulty, sometimes we wonder, don't we? We go, God, are you really reigning? Are you really in control? Are you omnipotent? There's a health challenge. There's a financial challenge. There's difficulty in relationships. There's questions that we don't have answers for. Many times with hardship, we we play the what if game. We say, you know what? If we only would have left five minutes earlier, we wouldn't have gotten in the car accident, right? These types of things come into our hearts and our minds. We trust God's goodness because of the cross. The hand that went to the cross is the hand that holds our lives. And this is key for our understanding of who God is, is that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful in my life. He's all-powerful in this world. He's ruling over the affairs of men. And for us to trust that and say, God, you know exactly what's going on. And how God's omnipotence how him being all powerful, but yet him allowing us to have free will, how those two go together, I can't explain to you. I can show you from the scriptures where God encourages us to believe and God gives us choices to make, but that doesn't cancel out his sovereignty. That doesn't cancel out his omnipotence. And so we trust that. We trust and we go, God, even with man having free will, you ultimately have the last say, In our theology, in our understanding of God, if God isn't the final authority, then there's something wrong with our theology. Amen? Because God really presents himself as the ultimate authority. This is the title of who God is. And as they see God, as this multitude sees God, they say, God, you reign. And we can join in that chorus. We can say, God, you're omnipotent. And I'm thankful that you are all-powerful in my life. So here's the response in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. So we're glad, we rejoice, and we give him glory. We're thankful that the church is married to Christ. And we're introduced to the marriage of the lamb has come. One of the illustrations that God gives to us of his relationship with us is that the church is his bride and he's the bridegroom. Of the ways that God could describe his relationship with us, he uses the most personal relationship. God could describe his relationship in a very authoritative way. That you are my slave, and I am your authority. Now, is God our authority? Absolutely. He is the Lord, and we are his servant. But God chooses to give us this illustration and this reality that church, you're my bride. What's another way that God is in relationship with us, that he is our father? So we see the closest relationships that we have here on this earth, the parent-child relationship, and that's ultimately pointing to God being our father. The husband-wife relationship is ultimately pointing to Jesus and how Jesus loves the church. Marriage at its highest form points to Christ in the church. When the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of a husband, he's loving his wife as Christ loves the church. The wife is respecting and adoring her husband the way the church adores Christ. And we're going to enter into the fullness of this relationship when we go home to be with the Lord. This is what Jesus is waiting for, is for his people to be gathered together to be his bride. We don't fully understand this, and this is a bit of a mystery to us, but at the very core of this, this shows a very passionate relationship. A husband is passionate about his wife, hopefully loves his wife unconditionally, and this is the way Christ feels about us. Is that your understanding of Christ? He's passionate about you. He loves you. He wants to spend time with you. Eternity is him welcoming you to this marriage feast. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And the wife has made herself ready. She's been prepared for this moment in verse eight. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, the apparel of the marriage feast. How you dress for a wedding is important, isn't it? Not as important in Colorado as it might be in the South. One of my buddies got married in Atlanta, Georgia, many moons ago, and man, they dress up down there for a wedding in a way that we don't hear. You know, Colorado is, is pretty casual, but there's still a, an appropriateness to, to a wedding. Say, I'm going to dress up and have the, the right apparel as a guest, but even more so for the bride, right? Even though weddings are casual in Colorado, the, the brides do it right, and they're prepared for this, this day, and many brides have already had their gown picked out, and all they need is the guy. I mean, they, they, they've had the gown since they were like five years old. It's in their head, right? I got three daughters, I know. And so, as we think of this analogy of Christ in the church, we're told that we're arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright, and ultimately, this is robed in Christ's righteousness. The only way we could be prepared as the church is through what Christ has done for us in being saved by grace. But also there is a place here for the righteous acts of the saints. God's grace in our lives worked out in serving the Lord is gonna matter. Church, it's gonna matter serving the Lord in this life. You're never gonna regret serving the Lord. And it's not determined or measured in man's eyes and glamor but in God's eyes, you know your heart. And if you're doing these things unto the Lord, you take a cup of cold water to a child in Jesus' name, you do your work unto the Lord, those are righteous acts. And it's going to matter when we are presented before Christ. So want to be clear, we're robed in his righteousness, but also to be true to the text, serving the Lord matters. And fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In verse 9, Then he said to me, write, so this voice encourages, write this down, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The marriage of the church to Christ is culminated in the marriage feast, in the marriage supper. David Guzik in his commentary on Revelation says, in Jewish culture, the marriage supper was the best banquet or party anyone knew. It always was on an occasion of tremendous joy. So the biggest party in town that ever happened was a marriage feast. And the marriage feast of the Lamb is going to top all parties. Jesus said in John 14, he says, Don't let your heart be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will again come and receive you to myself. Jesus has been working on this party for a while. He's been working on this marriage feast of the Lamb for a while, and we're to have our hearts comforted. We're to have our hearts filled with joy that we're going to be at the marriage feast of the Lamb. If you know Christ as your Savior, pictures yourself at this marriage supper with Christ in everything that he has prepared for you. Did you know God likes food? Food is God's idea and God's creation. He could have created us where we plugged in in order to receive nourishment or we didn't need nourishment. I've often thought it'd be kind of nice if I was like my iPhone. I could simply just turn off and say, it is time to go to sleep. I could just plug in and say, now it's time for some nutrients. But God didn't make it that way, right? You've got to sit down and you've got to eat. Why did God design us for food, where we need food? I think that food brings us together. Think about it. How little time would you have with people if you didn't have the necessity to eat, right? And so because we've got to eat, we tend to sit down with people, sit down with families, sit down with with friends. Brings us close together, it also brings us close to the Lord. In the Old Testament. God laid out feasts for his people, the the children of Israel. All of them involved food. It was like celebrate God and celebrate one another. We would do well to have some good meals where we sit down and say, this is a little bit special. We're celebrating God and we're celebrating one another. He put it on the calendar and said, you've got to do this. You've got to take time off work and I want you to eat well and gratitude and have time for one another. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That was God's idea of of food. Jesus ate with people. He spent time eating with people. We read in the Gospels that he was the friend of sinners and they would invite Jesus over to his house and he would sit down and he would eat with them. Right before he was crucified, the Last Supper, where he shares with us communion. Do this in remembrance of me. After he died and rose again, Peter was restored over breakfast, and Jesus cooked it up for him. I bet it was pretty delicious, right? And Jesus used that opportunity to be able to speak and to be able to share with them. So all of that, all of those meals, all of the things that we see in the Old Testament and with Jesus, and every time we sit down and have a meal together is ultimately pointing to this marriage feast of the Lamb where we're joined to Christ and we get to celebrate together. There's gonna be no guilt calories here. This is gonna be truly organic. No concerns with blood pressure. Too much bacon, don't have to worry about it, right? But what is center stage is Christ. In verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that, I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John gets so overwhelmed by what he's seeing that he turns and he tries to worship the angel. And the angel very quickly and wisely says, hey, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant. You need to worship Jesus. We have this tendency where we want to worship the messenger instead of the giver of the message. We want to worship what we see instead of worshiping what we can't see. And don't make the mistake of of ever worshiping an angel, worshiping a pastor or teacher or mentor or author, Be thankful for them, but in no way worship them. Worship belongs to Jesus Christ. We live in a celebrity culture, don't we? We're looking for celebrities. We want to put people up on pedestals. Don't do that. Worship Jesus. And that's the exhortation that the angel gives, is worship God. Gives us a great insight at the end of verse 10 for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Sometimes prophecy gets a bad rap, and I see why, because people twist prophecy and they come up with all of these conspiracy ideas. But don't throw out prophecy. Prophecy is pointing to future events, where God predicts future events, and the Bible tells us that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. A lot of prophecy in the Bible points directly to Jesus Christ. David Hawking put it this way, any teaching of prophecy that makes our minds and that takes our minds and hearts away from him is not being properly communicated. So if someone gives a message on prophecy and the focus is not Jesus, but causes fear in your hearts, it's not properly communicated because the testimony of prophecy is Jesus Christ. Wolverd says, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what I hope you've experienced in this study of Revelation, that it's taken you deeper into Jesus Christ. Verse 11, now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is the faithful and true one. The heaven is opened like a veil and we see Jesus seated upon a white horse returning to make war with those who are against Christ. So remember, be invited to dinner or be dinner. We are now in the be dinner section of the chapter. These are those that have rejected the Lord, that don't want anything to do with the Lord, that are receiving his judgment. Church, let's simplify this for just a moment. Jesus is coming. He's coming. Jesus taught us to be watching, to be expectant for his coming. Much of the New Testament is written with turning our attention to Christ's return. He's gonna make everything right the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the faithful and the true. And for us to trust and believe in faith and going, Jesus, you are coming. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news for our world? Isn't that good news for our lives personally? Maybe you've had a really tough day, tough week, tough decade. Christ is coming. He is returning. And he's going to return upon this white horse to make things right to make war with those who are opposed to him. Why the white horse? Because he's conquering. Generals would ride in upon the white horses, the Roman generals. This is different than how Christ came in his first coming, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey very humbly. A donkey communicates humility. You know, the donkey is the Honda Accord of the world, right? great utility, I love Honda Accord, good gas mileage, all love it, right? But a donkey and a Honda Accord speak humility, right? The white horse, pick your favorite muscle car, I don't know, you know? And here Jesus is coming in upon the white horse, and the message is clear that he is the conquering king. The second title, faithful and true, so thankful that Jesus is both faithful and true. If God was not faithful, we could not count on him to show up. We couldn't count on him to be faithful to his promises. If he wasn't true, he would lead us astray. Thankfully, Jesus is faithful and he's true. There should be a part of our hearts that longs for Jesus to judge and make things right. Every week, there's so many horrific things in the headlines of all kinds of evil and atrocities and people being taken advantage of and murdered. And you know, you, you read the news. And to be able to rest and say, Jesus, you're going to make all things right. Describing Jesus, his eyes were like a flame of fire and his head were many crowns. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. The eyes of of fire speak of Jesus being able to see through the hearts of men. As he judges rightly, he's able to pierce and see our hearts. Many crowns speak of him being the ultimate authority. Then Christ has a name written on him that no one knew except himself. This is pretty unique because any name of Christ speaks of his character and nature. There's an aspect of the character and nature of Christ that he himself only knows. This is encouraging to us that for all of eternity, there's more to know about Jesus. There's more to know about God. Not that God's character is gonna change, but we're gonna understand him in a deeper way. There's part of his character and his nature that he is keeping to himself, that will be, be revealed. In verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Do you see the difference here? As the bride of Christ, we're clothed in bright linen, pure and white. But Jesus' robe is one that's been dipped in blood, the crucifixion. He went to the cross and maintains this red robe so that we could be robed in his righteousness and be forgiven. The third title to Christ, the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. That's one of his names that's a- ascribed to him because the written word reveals Jesus Christ. Reveals Jesus Christ. John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. Jesus went through the Old Testament after his resurrection and pointed in the law and the prophets where it spoke of him. So the word of God points to Jesus Christ. One of the titles for Jesus is the Word of God. One of the things I'm looking forward to in heaven is to hear Jesus teach the Word. Right? For Jesus to lead the Bible study. The written Word's going to endure forever, and the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, is going to lead us in the Word. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed Him on white horses. Now, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it struck the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His mouth, a sharp sword, a sharp sword of his judgment. God's word has a way of breaking and saving the humble, but his word also has a way of judging the proud, sharper than a two-edged sword. So he comes speaking the word and it's judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. He uses it to strike the nations. He rules over the nations with a rod of iron. Psalms 2 promises the nations to Jesus Christ. He's gonna rule over the nations. I can't help but imagine and wonder what this world's going to look like with Christ at the helm. Not the United Nations, not the different presidents and prime ministers of different countries, but Jesus Christ. And the idea of him ruling with a rod of iron is there's no question. There's no question of his authority. There's no countries that are like, well, we're going to be in rebellion to Jesus Christ. And here's the fourth title of Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the beautiful combination that we have in Jesus, that he's the servant who washed feet, who came in human flesh, who humbled himself to the point of death upon the cross. What if he was the king of kings and Lord of lords, but he wasn't the humble servant? But thankfully, he's the humble servant who's our savior, but he's also the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. So we don't want to diminish Jesus in either category. Amen? We don't want to take away from his authority, his power, but also his humility and his approachability. How about this written on his thigh and on his robe? So when he's on his white horse, what are you going to see? Boom, his thigh, right? Maybe the ultimate tattoo right here. And what does it say? King of kings and Lord of lords. No questions. And that's also written upon his, his robe as well. In verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. So the birds get in on the feast. Come gather together for supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave both small and great The world comes against Christ, making war with God. Christ brings judgment. Christ wins. And there's all of this carnage. And the angel speaks to the birds of the air and says, Here's this this feast for you. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horses and against his army. We've studied the beast in the book of Revelation and all the destruction that he's brought. Now it's the beast moment of judgment from God. And the kings of the earth are judged and their armies. And they've gathered together to make war against him. There it is. They're making war against Christ who sat on the horse. So all of humanity is leading up to this point of hating Christ. of wanting nothing to do with Christ. And ultimately then judgment is brought on. In verse 20, Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The beast is captured. The false prophet is captured. They deceived many into taking the mark and they're cast into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. We're gonna look at the lake of fire more in our study next week. But hell is real. Hell is very real for the beast and for the false prophet, for those that reject Christ as as their savior. When Jesus spoke to us about the reality of hell, he gives us the gift of heaven. He gives us the gift of, of eternal life. But for those who reject Christ, there is the lake of fire and it is God's just judgment. He's justified in Sending us to hell based on our sins and our rejection of Christ verse twenty one and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh and that 's where we end tonight's study as we look forward to the marriage feast of the lamb, the table that's been prepared for us in heaven there's also a table that Jesus has prepared for us in taking communion and celebrating uh, communion. One of the things that I'm really thankful for in our home is my wife goes through a lot of effort, Amber, to prepare our table, to make us good meals. And I enjoy cooking some, and there's a few things that I like to prepare and and for us to, to feast on. But I'm a low-level cook. I'm, I'm the hamburgers and tacos and spaghetti and those are kind of my my go-to's I often tell the kids if mom passes away these are the three or four things you can count on that we will we will be eating and and you know the table's prepared before us you know she works hard to prepare the the table and the kids are getting into cooking you know my daughters are are getting into cooking and they have their night where they cook and and Wyatt is starting to enjoy some cooking uh, as well and it's humbling, isn't it, to sit down and enjoy a meal that someone has prepared for you, right? And it's, it's one thing if, for the food to be good, and that, that's humbling, but then also for someone to prepare the table because they want to spend time with you, right? So when you go to a restaurant, they prepare the table, and we appreciate that. But, you know, if your spouse or one of your kids or one of your friends, they prepare a, a meal for you, you're like, wow, th- this tastes good. And I'm so thankful for your company. You've prepared this table before me. Psalms 23 describing Jesus says that I'm going to prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Jesus, in his love for us, prepares tables before us. One of those tables is communion. And for us to pause in the midst of a busy week and to say, Jesus, thank you for preparing this table for me. And he is manna daily bread and to reflect on his broken body and his shed blood and allow Jesus to meet with you. But then also to look forward to the marriage feast of the lamb. Say, Jesus, I can't wait for you to come back. One of the things that we're told in celebrating communion is often as you drink this cup, you proclaim his death till he comes. You're like, Jesus, you're coming. Jesus, you're coming. Right now, I'm drinking of this cup but someday, I'm going to be partying with you at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And I can't wait for that day. And you are the lifter of my head. First Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's kind of a strange term. But get, get your mind prepared for action. If you were wearing a robe and you were moving into action, you would gird your loins. So gird the loins of your mind. Be sober, which is... Not speaking about alcohol here, but it's speaking about being level-headed. Be level-headed and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So to rest fully on the grace that's going to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We think we've experienced grace now. Just wait until we're at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Just wait until Christ is revealed. Either... In us dying and going home to be with the Lord, or in the rapture of the church. And we're gonna go, wow, grace has been revealed. I have seen Jesus for who he is, and we put our minds there. We say, that's what I'm looking forward to, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. However life goes, we know either we're going to go home to be with the Lord, or we're going to go in the rapture of the church. That's absolutely certain. Let's pray and move into communion. Let's stand together. Would you stand with me? Jesus, so, so many times, so many days, I'm not thinking about your return. I'm not anticipating your return. I'm trying to get through the day and all of the challenges and the ups and the downs. And we choose tonight to respond to your word and say thank you for preparing a table before us that you would want to spend time with us. Here tonight, you've allowed, ordained for us to be here and for us to draw near to you in communion. May you be our daily bread. For what we need this evening, would you be our daily bread. But also, we look forward to when we're going to lift a cup of rejoicing in your presence, that we're going to celebrate in your presence. We also see in this text the, the reality of those that have rejected you. I pray that you would give us a fresh heart for the lost. If there's those that don't know you, that haven't yet trusted you for salvation, that tonight they would be saved. So God, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.